Hi, this is Brother Sam, and looking forward to being with you today as we're going through chapter three of To Be a People. This chapter is called Be True. And I have a confession to make right off the bat. When I'm at Mass and they start reading the gospel, I do this thing in my mind where if I recognize what they're talking about, if I think, oh, I've heard this before, I check out. I mean, one minute I'm dialed in, next minute I'm thinking about what I'm having for lunch. I don't know if this happens to you. But one of the things that we're going to talk about today is the parable of the prodigal son. And I know, if you're like me, you've heard it enough times that that's one of those moments where you check out, where your brain goes somewhere else. That's a shame because the Word of God is living and effective. It's a sharp-edged sword that penetrates our hearts and speaks to us in new ways. So I'm going to say to me, and I hope you can hear it for you, let's dial in. Let's listen. Let's let the Lord and his word speak to us. You're going to hear something new, I think, from this parable about the prodigal son. Something about the father, about the father's house, and about the way that Jesus relates to us as an older brother. It's going to inspire us how to live as brothers and sisters in the father's house and live deep relationship. Are you ready? Let's begin. Chapter 3. Be True. What unites us as a people? Our faith? Our struggles? Maybe it's something more random, like I got into this school or job and met somebody from SPO, came out for a few events, and then just decided to get more involved. All of these may be true in various ways, but they aren't really what unites us. The underlying, unifying power at work among us is our shared identity as daughters and sons of God the Father. St. Paul urges us to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, one body and one Spirit, as you were also called to the one hope of your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity, then, is founded on the Father. The question is not, do I know this? But rather, do I know the Father? Maybe we can say we know Jesus. After all, we've heard the stories from the Gospels and have a mental picture of what he might have looked like. What about the Father? What's he like? What picture comes to mind when you think about him? Jesus himself gives us the most compelling picture of the Father. In the parable of the prodigal son, the Father's heart is revealed in vivid detail. Sometimes you hear this called the story of the lost son or the two sons. But really, it's the figure of the Father that shines through. Read the parable, Luke 15, verses 11 to 32. Consider these questions. What traits do I notice about the Father in this story? What do these traits tell me about his character? What kind of father is he? If you're familiar with this parable, and I'm guessing that you are, it's pretty hard to see it with fresh eyes. I'll offer two views to take us deeper. The first is to notice what the parable shows us about the Father's house. It's a place of celebration. It's a warm, inviting home. It welcomes sinners and overflows with forgiveness. We've heard a lot about temples, but I think this improves the picture. If the temple is just a stone structure, the dwelling place of God looks pretty cold. That all changes when we see it as the Father's house. We still approach with purity of heart, but it no longer feels like God is standing back, 
measuring our worthiness. Now we see him as out on the front porch, so to speak, waiting eagerly for our arrival. Once we know the Father this way, one who waits for us and welcomes us, we want to be with him. We want his house to become our home. For the second fresh view, I'll ask you to use your imagination. I'm going to propose a thought experiment by introducing another character into the parable. That character is Jesus. A little context can set the stage. The parable is prompted by the criticism Jesus is getting from the Pharisees. They don't like the way he welcomes sinners, all those prostitutes and tax collectors. Jesus tells them the story to show them the Father. Mercy only makes sense if we recognize the source it flows from the Father's heart. Jesus is also holding up a mirror for his critics to see themselves. You're the older brother, he's saying. Rather than celebrating the return of your brothers, you're sulking off to the side. If the Pharisees are the bad older brother, what does a good brother look like? The parable doesn't really answer that question. What I'm proposing is that we place Jesus in the story to help us see the way a good brother behaves in the Father's house. It says that the younger brother in the parable comes to his senses after he runs out of money and finds himself feeding pigs. Let's imagine that the brother doesn't just come to his senses on his own. Suppose instead that somebody actually seeks him out and calls him back. If we picture Jesus as the older brother who doesn't stay at home resentful, but who leaves the father's house to go looking for his lost brother, it offers new insight. Here's another shift. What if the younger brother isn't just a laborer feeding pigs? Imagine that he's also a slave. It's not a big stretch. He's lost everything. No robe, no ring, no sign of sonship. If we picture him as a slave, as somebody else's property, He's no longer free to simply walk away. He has to be bought at a price. The word for buying back a slave is redemption. Do you see how this connects to Jesus? Fast forward to the father's house. The prodigal returns. Robe, ring, and sandals are restored. The father's joy is overwhelming and the celebration begins. Again, if we place Jesus in the scene, he is not the angry outsider. He is the older brother who joins wholeheartedly in the feast. When our thought experiment places Jesus in the story, we see loyal sonship and faithful brotherhood by way of contrast as the antithesis of the two selfish sons. Just so you don't think I'm taking liberties with the word of God, I offer that the rest of the Gospels bear out this similar message, namely that Jesus models a radically renewed kind of brotherhood. He left the Father's house came to seek the lost, redeemed us by his blood, and restored us as daughters and sons of the Father. These two views, the welcoming warmth of the Father and the saving mission of the Son, tell us a lot about the household of God. Not only the quality and the character of the Father himself, but the kind of daughters and sons we're called to be. Simply put, we are to follow the example of Jesus, the good older brother, who seeks out sinners and celebrates their return. That's the person who's at home in the Father's house. Our way of life in SPO is modeled on the brotherhood we see in Christ. He's a trusted steward in the household of the Father. He serves his younger sisters and brothers rather than seeking to be served. That's how we want to live. 
serving in God's household, stewarding the treasures He entrusts to us, going out to seek the lost and celebrating every sinner who returns. Unlike Jesus, we have an added motivation for this. We're never too far from our own sinful past and present. It keeps us humble and close to the Father's merciful heart. The rest of this book is a very practical application of what it looks like to live and serve in the household of God. We'll focus on three areas, patterns of speech, approaches to reconciliation, and witnessing to the world. It flows from the life of the Trinity. From the Father's merciful heart, we learn right speech. From the humility of Christ, we learn to repair relationships. From the indwelling Holy Spirit, we bring the light of truth into this present darkness. We begin with our words. The Power of Words A steward is someone who can be trusted with great treasures. As stewards in the Father's house, how do we guard the treasure of unity? It is often won or lost with our words. Think back to the Pharisees' criticism. They used words to tear down, but Jesus used words to build up. These are religious people. They're supposed to be the faithful ones. But because they don't know the Father's heart, they only see fault where Jesus sees repentance. Here's the humbling truth. That could be any of us. If we speak against our sisters and brothers, the parable isn't just a mirror for the Pharisees. It's for us as well. This isn't one issue among many. It's make or break for Christian maturity. Jesus makes it clear, quote, from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good person brings forth good out of a store of goodness, but an evil person brings forth evil out of a store of evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will render an account for every careless word they speak. Unquote. Please approach this with a teachable, humble heart. It can do wonders for the quality of your relationships. Four Pillars of Right Speech We'll lay out four pillars, four ways in our patterns of speech to go from bad to good. We're not covering everything, but highlighting a few important points. Ask the Lord to show you what needs work in your own life. Don't use these to condemn yourself or others. Use them to inspire and approach them in hope. The first pillar, to unify and not divide. Words can form wedges. Jesus cautioned his followers, quote, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, unquote. Leaven is a helpful image. When we speak against each other, our words are like leaven that spreads throughout the community like yeast in dough. We can do far greater damage than we realize. Below are some examples of the ways we create division with careless speech. What words divide? Gossip. Gossip is the spreading of information about others that's unnecessary, embarrassing, or unkind. It's idle talk behind a person's back about misfortunes, mistakes, faults, weaknesses, or personal affairs. Before sharing or comparing notes about who's with who or what so-and-so did last weekend, stop and reflect, is this need to know? Usually, that's a no. Slander. Slander is disclosing someone else's serious faults and failings without any objectively valid reason to persons who don't know them. Well, you know, he's a heavy drinker. Or, yeah, and she sleeps over her boyfriend's apartment every weekend. Slander has two edges. 
It's not only a sin against the person who is slandered, but also the listener who has to hear this hot garbage. In Sirach, it says, quote, No one who listens to slander will be at peace again. St. John Vianney, a priest who had an astonishing gift for hearing and helping people in confession, once advised, quote, If something uncharitable is said in your presence, either speak in favor of the one absent or withdraw. Or, if possible, stop the conversation. When slander comes your way, have the courage to speak up. Say something like, okay, time out. You're dragging me into something where I'm not part of the problem or the solution. It seems like you've been hurt by this. Maybe you should speak to this person again. Try to get to the bottom of things. Whatever you can do on your side of the situation, I encourage you, be reconciled with them. How do we make amends when we offend? Private slander calls for us to reconcile only with the listener, but public slander calls for reconciliation with both or all parties. To give some idea of how much damage can be done by gossip and slander, St. John Vianney directed one of his penitents to climb up on her roof with a pillow, cut it open, and shake out all the feathers. She came back and reported that she'd done as directed. Now, go out and gather up all those feathers, said the humble priest. She protested that it was impossible. It's also impossible, he explained, to retrieve our careless words. By the way, this was before social media. Just saying. What words unite? Jesus used words to unite, not divide. He defended the sinful woman who entered the Pharisee's house and washed his feet with her tears. He saw in her a woman of gratitude and generosity, while the Pharisee only saw fault. He speaks from the merciful heart of the Father, words of restoration. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We can also speak words that restore and renew, helping others see themselves as the Father sees them. Praise. Praise is something we offer to God, but we can also praise people by speaking highly of them, especially for the good things we see in them. It's relatively easy to praise good work or helpful service, but here's something challenging. Work on appreciating and praising your sisters and brothers not for what they do, but for who they are, for their positive qualities. Bless. Bless is probably easier to understand if you consider the opposite, to curse. Cursing is to speak or wish ill on someone, like the guy who cut you off on the way over to small group. To bless is to respond in the Father's merciful heart, especially when someone hurts us. St. Paul says, quote, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Unquote. Honor. Honor is similar to praise, but it's usually more public. Honoring someone can seem a little awkward, but with time it gets more natural. Try to make a habit of speaking about people in a way that makes others think well of them. Practice expressing sincerity without flattery. Be attentive to how your words are received by the person you want to encourage. If they're embarrassed, you might need to dial it down in the future, but don't give up altogether. Honoring is a powerful force for unity. It says, I've got your back. As temples of the Holy Spirit, recall that we approach each other with respect and honor. Honor unlocks the possibility of deep relationship. The same is true in reverse. When we dishonor our sisters and brothers by what we say, we close the door to depth. 
Nobody wants to open up if they fear something they say will one day be used against them. Words are one of the most effective means by which we build this temple. The second pillar, to edify and not discourage. To edify is to build up. To discourage is to tear down. Literally, it means to take the core, the heart, out of a person or a situation by our words. We see how the Jewish leaders spoke discouragement to anybody who defended Jesus. Quote, Does our law condemn a person before it hears him and finds out what he's doing? Unquote. Asks Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. He is quickly put down. Quote, you are not from Galilee also, are you? Look and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Unquote. What words discourage? Our own ways of speaking discouragement might not be so extreme, but recall the parable and the older brother in the field. Remember how he criticized from afar? That's a pretty good picture of what discouraging speech looks like. Grumbling. Grumbling is to focus on the negative, to speak against people, events, decisions, groups, you name it. It's wrong for two reasons at least. First, it's destructive rather than constructive. Second, it drains the joy, energy, and spirit out of otherwise good things. Complaining. Complaining is expressing disagreement or personal offense in a way that leads to resentment rather than resolution. Like grumbling, it casts a dark cloud over the community as if nothing is good enough. Complaint sees so much of what's wrong, it blinds us to what's right. What words edify? Jesus used words to build up. When a scribe rightly observed that love of God and neighbor is, quote, worth more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, unquote, Jesus commends him, quote, you are not far from the kingdom of God, unquote. Because we are in Christ, our words also have real power. When we speak encouragement, it's not just a nice thought. It actually confirms and strengthens. That's the way our words can build up the body of Christ. Encouragement. Encouragement is to give heart. It happens when we emphasize the good things we see happening, and especially the ways God is at work in our community. It doesn't ignore fault or sweep wrongdoing under the rug but it approaches such things with positive intent. How can I make this better? Encouragement also points the way to possibility. We communicate what can be done rather than sit back and criticize worthy efforts. Affirmation. Affirmation is similar to encouragement, but it's usually more personal and one-to-one. -one. Ways of affirming are to assume the best of a person, to suppose positive intentions even when they fail, to offer ways they can use their gifts and service to the community. This is not about being nice. It's a matter of justice. We live in a world that tears us down every day. When we use words to build up, we speak truth against these corrosive lies. We affirm one another's dignity as beloved daughters and sons. We uproot the false standards imposed by our prevailing culture. Beauty, wealth, popularity, and success None of these are bad in themselves, but the world wants to measure our worth by such things. In the Father's house, the only measure that matters are his love and truth. By our words, we either affirm this or deny it. The third pillar, to transform and not destroy. In the Gospel of Matthew, we read about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. Quote, 
Then Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and took counsel against him to put him to death. Unquote. We see the stark contrast between Jesus, the older brother who uses words to transform, and the Pharisees who use words to destroy. Our words also have power to heal or to harm. We may not be plotting to kill, but we can still destroy truth and damage trust by what we say. When this impacts other people's lives, relationships, and reputations, it is destructive. What words destroy? Lying. Lying is to speak or to refrain from speaking with the intent to deceive. So it's not making an honest mistake. It's intentional deception which includes withholding truth from someone who has a right to know or misleading a person or group by creating a false impression. Lying and deception tear the fabric of trust in a community. Manipulation. Manipulation is the unjust use of words to coercively impose your will on others. One common example is a certain kind of accusation. You don't really care about me, or nobody likes me, or you're trying to break up with me. Accusation is really a demand for reassurance, and it has a long-term negative effect, making friends feel boxed in. No matter what they say, they start to pull away. If a friend feels distant, rather than accuse, offer the person the kind of attentive care you'd hope to receive. This is not demanding payback, but going the extra mile. St. John of the Cross advises, quote, Where there is no love, put love, and you will draw out love. Unquote. Not only words, but even silence can be a form of manipulation. Like when you give the cold shoulder to someone who doesn't do what you want. Exaggeration. Exaggeration can be used positively for emphasis or even humor. But when it's a way of promoting ourselves and inflating our egos, it's destructive. An example would be when we're describing a difficult situation we're experiencing to a third party portraying our part in the most favorable light, but not giving others involved the same treatment. What words transform? The Lord's words bring transformation not only by healing, but by repentance. When Jesus visits the home of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the ever-present critics say, quote, He has gone to stay at the house of a sinner, unquote, words without mercy. But Zacchaeus is so moved by his conversations with Jesus that he repents, quote, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I shall give to the poor. Unquote. Can you hear the voice of the good older brother in Jesus' response? Quote, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save what was lost. Unquote. To transform, then, is to bring positive change, even if it involves difficult conversations and decisions. Three ways our words can do this. Honesty. Honesty is to speak the truth in love. It combines the right message with the right motive. Sometimes, we think being real allows us to speak our mind regardless of the hurt it causes. To speak the truth in love is to ask before saying anything, is this really helpful? Exhortation Exhortation is to urge someone towards a good goal or a worthy effort to inspire and strengthen, especially where a sister or brother struggles with weakness. Correction Correction is the loving confrontation of a good person about a bad decision. 
The Bible uses the word rebuke, but it's not as harsh as that might sound. To speak a word of correction is usually difficult on both ends, for the one giving as well as the one receiving. A few tips. First, pray and ask the Lord for the right words, the right heart, and the right opportunity. Don't hold off too long, especially if the problem impacts others. Second, speak privately and raise the issue in the best possible context. Assume positive intent. Ask to understand. Affirm whatever is good. Avoid accusations. Third, be clear about the issue you're raising. Explain what you understand to be the wrongdoing. Fourth, hear them out. Let them respond and be the one to identify the best resolution. Last, leave them with an encouragement. Hey, I know God has a lot of grace for us when we try. I really believe you'll see improvement if you make a little more effort. The fourth pillar, to glorify God, not exalt the enemy. At one point, Jesus directly confronts the dishonesty of his opponents, saying, quote, You belong to your father the devil, and you willingly carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. Unquote. When we don't stand in the truth of the Father's love and mercy, we fall for the lies of our ancient enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Which path will we take with our tongues? It's a daily choice. What words exalt the enemy? Negative humor, put-downs, and sarcasm. Negative humor, put-downs, and sarcasm make others the butt of our jokes. When we mock people and ridicule their flaws, real or perceived, we choose pride over love. Can we agree? This kind of talk is everywhere. At work, in school, or even at home, it might be the usual way you communicate. Consider the opposite, though. It's a powerful sign when you don't participate. When others are putting people down and you don't join in, it says something. Sometimes you can't help cracking up. But a good goal in such situations, if you can't comfortably leave, is to be the first one who stops laughing. Foul language and perversity. Foul language and perversity degrades the dignity of the person speaking, those listening, and anybody that is spoken about. Perversity is pornographic speech. It dehumanizes and sexually objectifies. That is, it treats people as tools and not treasures. What words glorify God? Praise. Praise assigns to God the qualities that belong to Him. It takes the focus off us and lifts our eyes to higher things. Thanks. Thanks is acknowledging the good things we receive from God. If we fail to thank Him, we tend to take credit ourselves. Prayer. Prayer can be quiet and private, but it can also be spoken spontaneously and openly, like when Jesus exclaimed, I give you praise, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Unquote. Witnessing Witnessing is the habit of telling others about the blessings of God. A simple way to open up the conversation is to follow this basic pattern. I know in my life I've struggled with blank, but through it, God has given me blank. Conclusion When discerning the right way to speak in any situation, Father Jack Spaulding, a priest of the Diocese of Phoenix, recommends that you stop and ask these three questions. One, 
does it need to be said? Two, does it glorify God? Three, would I say what I am about to say if Jesus was standing next to me? As we learn how to do this, we'll have to cut ourselves a break. Most of us grew up among family and friends who love put-downs, teasing, and sarcasm. Even if it's funny, it often comes with a cost. These ways of speaking can be painful and leave lasting marks like an inability to be honest, open, or serious about things that matter. Good words make for good relationships. That's the father's desire for his daughters and sons. When we build up with our speech, we grow closer to God and to each other. We can also admit that we're not very good at this, so it's going to take time and a lot of humility. Not a bad thing. Remember the Father's merciful heart. He doesn't condemn when we fail to use speech well. He runs to meet us. When we repent, He forgives. But He also calls us to enter His house, a place overflowing with forgiveness and mercy for us and for all our sisters and brothers. Freely you receive, freely give.